You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now with your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 8. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, it is always the joy of Your people to gather around Your Word, for in it You reveal to us the mysteries of Christ, the glories of Your redemptive plan, Your purposes for us, Your comforts and encouragements to Your people. And we pray that this morning our hearts may take solace and comfort in Your Word and that You would encourage us again with what You have accomplished for us in Your Son. May we rest in that, trust in that, and may that be our confidence and our joy everlastingly. We pray Your blessing upon this time and that You would give us insight and understanding in Your Word as we look at it together. For Christ's sake and in His name we pray. Amen. Well, it has been two full months since we were in the book of Hebrews. That's long enough for many of you to forget what book we were studying before we stopped meeting together. And so we are here in Hebrews chapter 8, and and I say two full months, I mean it was exactly two full months. March 1st was the last time we were in Hebrews. After that, I came back from Shepherd's Conference and Dave Rich preached, and then the following week, uh, I married off my oldest daughter and Justin Peters preached, and we weren't in Hebrews for either of those two. And then the world fell apart, and we haven't been back here together since. Um, And when I say the world fell apart, I meant that I did all of this to you by marrying off my oldest daughter, and I apologize for that. I lost a tax deduction, and a plague hit the country, and it has been just horrible ever since. (laughs) Children continue to cost you money after they leave home, but just in a different way. That's how that works. I figured that out now after marrying off two of them. So we're here in Hebrews chapter 8, and it would be tempting to go back and to review all of the introductory stuff that we covered prior to this, because we kind of stopped at the end of verse 6. And then I took three weeks to introduce the subject of a new covenant and talk about the hermeneutical approach that we're taking and the difference between dispensational theology and covenant theology and how our view of the covenant affects our interpretation and understanding of this passage as well as eschatological passages. And we talked about the distinctives of all of that. And and then we kind of went through all of the covenants. Remember, we reviewed the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant. And all of that to just prepare us to look at the new covenant. So there was a lot of groundwork that we laid and uh, there to get ready for this. And if, if you need review on that, all of those messages are online. If this is your first time here and you're wondering why in the world are you just dropping in, parachuting into Hebrews 8, we're not. Um, there's, there's been a lot of groundwork laid for this and I'm not, it would take me three messages to go back and to review everything that we covered already. So I don't want to do that. We're just going to jump in as if we were all here last week for the last of the introductory messages to the new covenant. So there is a transition in verse 6 where the author, in summing up the previous section, comparing the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of the uh, the, uh, the old covenant, the Aaronic priesthood, he transitions in verse 6 to introduce us to this idea of a new covenant by saying in chapter 8, verse 6, but now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, meaning a more excellent priesthood, since he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. And there you have it. A better ministry of a better covenant enacted on better promises. 
And it is altogether better what we have in Jesus. That's the way the author sums up all of the comparisons of chapter 6 and 7 regarding the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, and all of that. And now he has come to the point of reminding us that Christ is better in so many ways. He is His power is better, His preeminence is better, His permanence as a king and as a priest is better. His work as our high priest is better than anything you could get under the Old Covenant. He, his, that's His way of sort of concluding that comparison. And then saying... He's the mediator of a better covenant and acted on better promises. Now, if you were a first century Jew and you're sitting in your, your little church, however they met in the first century, in a home or uh, out under the trees, and the, the letter to the Hebrews has just arrived in your first century church, and you're a first century Jew and you're reading through this, you would have one pressing and preeminent question that you would need to have answered, and it would be this. Why should I think that that old covenant instituted 1,500 years ago that has was good enough for Moses, it was good enough for Aaron, it was good enough for David, it has served our country, our nation, our people for 15 centuries. Why should I think that that old covenant has been replaced with something new? If it was good enough for all of those men, if it has functioned for 15 centuries uninterrupted, why should I think that something new has come along? Why should I think that something new would be better? You know the old adage, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new? Have you heard that? First century Jew would be asking that question. Why should I think that we need something new? The answer to that is because even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God told you He was going to give to you something new. He promised a new covenant. And the author of Hebrews' argument is the time and the person and the means of that new covenant have now arrived. So a first century Jew asking the question, why should I think that something new has come? The short answer, because Jeremiah the prophet, under the old covenant, promised that a new was going to come. And so he quotes, and you see it there in verses 30, or verse 8, all the way through verse 12, that long extended quotation, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Two things. First, we're going to look at why a new covenant was necessary, why there was a need for a new covenant. And then second, we're going to go back into the book of Jeremiah and look at the historical and literary context of the giving of that new covenant. So we can understand how a Jew would have understood, so we can see how a Jew would have understood the promises of that new covenant, what they would have meant to a Jew in Jeremiah's day, and thus what they would have meant to a Jew in the first century in the book of Hebrews' day. So, let's begin. We'll just read together verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, you'll notice that he he mentions that there were faults with the covenant. It's not that the covenant was false, F-A-L-S-E, or that it was untrue or, or bad. It's just that there were faults with it. You could say it was faulty in certain terms. Now, we've used I've used the term before. A designed inadequacy, because you looked at some of the old covenant, the priesthood, and I've said, why, if God instituted a priesthood, why would it not accomplish X, Y, and Z? And the answer to that has been, under the old covenant and in the old priesthood, there were designed inadequacies. The old covenant and the old priesthood were not designed to do certain things. That's why God said there's going to come another one, another priesthood and another covenant, because that old priesthood and that old covenant could not do certain things. And it's not that the old covenant was bad, it's that the old covenant was, did exactly perfectly what, exactly what it was designed to do. There were certain things that it was not designed to do. It wasn't designed to take away sins. It wasn't designed to secure the salvation of God's people. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to point to our sin, to highlight our sin, to show us our need for a Savior. 
It was designed in order to portray and to picture the Messiah who would come and the work that he would do, but it was not designed to do with the work that the new covenant has done. So there were certain faults with the old covenant, or as the author of Hebrews calls it, the first covenant. Look in verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So now now the question comes up. What is the first covenant that he means by first covenant? Because remember, there were five previous covenants. There was the Noahic covenant, and then the Abrahamic covenant. Then there was the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant with the law and Mount Sinai. And then after that, there was the priestly covenant. And then there was the Davidic covenant, a covenant God made with David. So notice that the author here doesn't say old and new, because in his mind... It's not contrasting the age of the covenant. It's not the age of the covenant that is the significance of it, but the order of the covenant. There is an order here in the mind of God. There was a first covenant, and that was to be followed sequentially by a second covenant. So what covenant is it that the second covenant has replaced? Which is the first covenant? Which of those five covenants? Is it the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic, the Mosaic, the priestly, or the Davidic covenant? Which of those five covenants does the second covenant replace? Which one of those is the first that's been replaced by it? He answers that look in verse 9. In in, quoting Jeremiah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the hand of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So here's the contrast between the old and the new, or the first and the second. The old or the first covenant was the Mosaic covenant. Listen carefully. Not the Noahic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, not the priestly covenant, and not the Davidic covenant. There was one covenant and one covenant only that was intended to be replaced by the second covenant. The second covenant, which we call the new covenant, does not abrogate and erase and do away with every previous covenant. There's one covenant that is intended to become obsolete and to pass away that the new covenant will replace and make obsolete. One covenant and one covenant only. The covenant that I made with them and they brought them out of the land of Egypt, that is the covenant that is replaced by the second covenant. So he identifies it. And the the argument here is if the first covenant were sufficient to accomplish all that God intended to do, then there would have been no need for a second. But, he says, Jeremiah promised a second covenant. Therefore, the first covenant was not sufficient. Do you follow the argument? If, If the first covenant were faultless, if it were perfect, if it could do everything that... I intended it to do, then there would have been no need for a second covenant, the Lord says. But the Lord made a second covenant, and therefore the first had faults. It had inadequacies, and they were designed inadequacies. And the author of Hebrews has been sort of moving this direction with his argument for the last couple of chapters. Remember back in chapter 7, verse 11, he talked about how the old covenant could not perfect the worshiper. It could not bring the worshiper near to God. It was unable to do that. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And that old covenant with all of its sacrifices and all of its accoutrements and all of its smells and bells and the whistles and everything that attended it, the priesthood and all of that, none of it could bring the worshiper near to God and perfect them. That is why he says in chapter 7, verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? The first priesthood could not perfect the worshiper, so there was necessary for there to be a second priesthood. Another fault with the old covenant was that it was weak and useless, as the author says in chapter 7, verse 18. For on the one hand, there was the setting aside of a former covenant because of its weakness and uselessness. It was weak and useless to do X, but not A, B, and C. Remember we talked about the designed inadequacy. The old covenant could do A, B, and C. That's what it was designed to do, and it did it very well. did it perfectly. It fulfilled God's purposes to do A, B, and C. But X, Y, and Z, it could not do. 
So it was a designed and this would be like me taking a, um, a screwdriver and saying, you know, the fault, the problem with the screwdriver is it cannot turn nine sixteenths nuts. That's the problem with the screwdriver. You say, well, the screwdriver is not intended to turn nine sixteenths nuts. Right. But I could say that that's a fault with the screwdriver, right? But the screwdriver is perfectly designed and does exactly what it is intended to do when I use it to do what it is intended to do. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was not intended to do certain things. There were certain uselessnesses to it, certain weaknesses, certain faults that it had. The new covenant takes care of all of those. The new covenant is also better because it is called a better covenant. Chapter 7, verse 22. The old covenant had dying priests. Chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he, that is Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. We have a priesthood that features an, a never-ending, never-dying, always-living priest who never ceases to make intercession for us. The Old Testament couldn't provide that, the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was insufficient because of its repeated sacrifices. Chapter 7, verse 27. Jesus does not need daily, like those other priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did when he offered himself up once and for all. One-time sacrifice. The Old Covenant, multiple sacrifices. That was a weakness. That was a uselessness aspect of that covenant. But in Christ, we in the New Covenant, we have something better. One sacrifice, sacrifice made one time, once and for all. The Old Testament featured weak priests. Chapter 7, verse 28. Law appoints men for as priests who are weak. And then the Old Testament and the Old Covenant simply had things which were mere copies of the things which were to come. And we read that in the uh, Scripture reading this morning, chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. They, the Old Testament priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. We serve, a, we have a Savior, a, a priest, who functions in the true tabernacle of God and who dwells at the right hand of the Father in majesty. All of those are weaknesses of the Old Covenant. And there's another one, which we're going to talk about more next week. Well, maybe not next week, but certainly in the weeks to come. There's another inadequacy. And that is that the Old Covenant could not, did not provide the ability for the people to obey the terms of the covenant. There was no provision made whereby the people could obey the terms of that old covenant. The new covenant provides that. How does the new covenant provide it? By writing the law of God in our hearts and putting the Spirit of God within us. By making us able to obey the terms of the new covenant. That's something the old covenant couldn't do. The old covenant just said, thou shalt not, and thou shalt. You do this and you don't do this. And yet the people broke the covenant. Why? Because they were unable to obey the terms of that covenant. The new covenant... Solves that problem. And you see in verses 9 through 11, the disobedience of the people contrasted with the provision of the new covenant. Look at verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. That is the new covenant. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the greatest of them to the least of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Complete forgiveness, knowledge of God, and the ability to obey the law written on our hearts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is what the new covenant provides, and so therefore, it is a better covenant. In every way. That was the glaring inadequacy of the Old Covenant. Now, every time, that, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, nearly every time that we've come across a quotation from the Old Testament, we've done something. We've gone back into the Old Testament 
to look at the quotation, how it was originally used, to look at its context so we can understand how they would have understood that passage when it was written, and so that we can understand how Jews in the first century should have or would have understood that passage as it is quoted in the book of Hebrews. And we're, we do this for this reason. Number one, we don't want to be guilty of, of taking a text that is quoted in the New Testament and understanding it differently than it would have been understood by the people who wrote that passage or quoted that passage. And the only way we can make sure that we understand the, the passage correctly is if we understand how it was originally used. So we can get into the mind and the heart of the original reader and the original author and see what it is, how it is that they would have understood that passage. Because the New Testament never quotes an Old Testament passage in such a way as to overturn or change the meaning of the Old Testament passage. Get that down. The New Testament never quotes an Old Testament passage in such a way as to change the meaning of the Old Testament passage. Now, New Testament authors might quote the Old Testament to say, here's another meaning that is intended by the Spirit of God in this passage, like a double entendre, or to show that there is another fulfillment of this passage that was intended by the author. But New Testament authors never quote the Old Testament so as to change the meaning of the Old Testament. So as to say, as it were, to the New Testament audience, you know that passage back in the Old Testament? They would have understood it like this. It's not like that at all. Totally different. We're just going to radically re-understand and reinterpret and, 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 and revise the meaning of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament in such a way as it has a radically different meaning. That's not how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. So we want to go back to the Old Testament and see if we are faithful in our understanding of the context in which the New Covenant was promised. So go back to the book of Jeremiah. Back to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Actually, we're going to begin at verse at chapter 29. So go back to Jeremiah 29. The historical situation in which Jeremiah found himself and the original audience would have found themselves in the book of Jeremiah was is, is very it's essential that we understand it and that we that we kind of get the context of it because it's it'll help us to understand the meaning of the new covenant as it was promised in Jeremiah's day. So we're starting in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, the New Covenant promises in chapter 31, so we're going to cover chapters 29 through actually chapter 33 today, all the way through chapter 33. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that, and I'm not promising you more than I'm going to deliver. We're actually going to cover that entire passage of Scripture, because that whole historical and literary context is significant and important, and I think you'll see that as we bring it all together here by the time we're done. We're not going to get done until 4, but at least we'll, we've got a lot of catching up to do, but... You'll see what happens when we get, when we get to the end, it's all done. Now here's the historical context of, of Jeremiah's day. I want you to read chapter 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'll stop right there. Now here's the historical context. Jeremiah lived at the end the visual end of the Davidic kingdom and the end of the southern kingdom, the nation of Israel. Jeremiah lived somewhere around 600 B.C. or just prior to 600 B.C. till uh, just after 586 B.C. Uh, Jeremiah lived in the southern kingdom and he was a prophet of the southern kingdom. And to put all of that in a little bit of context, remember if we go back 1,500 years to the time of David, no, uh, sorry, that would be Abraham. If you go back 1,000 years to the time of David, 1,000 B.C., 
1000 BC to the time of David. After David uh, died, his kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. And that's how, after the divided kingdom, that's how the, they were referred to as Israel and Judah. There were two kingdoms, ten tribes in the north and two in the south. And in the, the Lord allowed the two kingdoms to remain in the south because he was going to fulfill his promise to David. And so all the descendants of David sat on the throne of the kingdom of Judah in the south all the way up until it was conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. But the northern kingdom never had a single good righteous king. Not one of them. All of them followed after the sons of Jeroboam, uh, the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin with all of his idolatry and his immorality and his wickedness. And so the northern kingdom actually fell over a hundred years prior to the fall of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And so as you go back through the Old Testament prophets, there are some prophets who prophesied to the northern kingdom, like Amos. And then there are some prophets who prophesied to the southern kingdom, like Jeremiah. So Jeremiah lived in a period of time where he watched and prophesied over all of the immorality that, and idolatry that was going on in the southern kingdom. That was the focus of his prophecy. The northern kingdom had already been conquered and fallen to the land of Assyria, to the kings of Assyria. And Isaiah records that because Isaiah was there for, for all of that conquering of the northern kingdom, etc. So that took place during Isaiah's time. But Jeremiah watched basically the southern kingdom of Judah fall. He watched Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and Jeremiah... Jeremiah prophesied and predicted that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in. He promised the people, because of all of your idolatry, your immorality, your violation of the covenant, because of all of your sin, the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to destroy you. They're going to lay the entire city and the entire region waste. God is going to punish you for your iniquity and for your sin. And then Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, watched what it was only a shell of its former glory, his, his kingdom, his nation. He watched it fall to the Babylonian empire. As invaders and raiders came in and did exactly that, destroyed the temple, broke down the temple, destroyed the king's palaces, and took people captive from Jerusalem out to Babylon. That's where Daniel, that's how Daniel got to the city of Babylon. He was taken from Jerusalem and he went to Babylon. So remember, Daniel and Jeremiah would have been contemporaries and likely would have lived in Jerusalem at the same period of time. Jeremiah being a very old man, Daniel being a very young man, but they were contemporaries. They lived at the same period of time. So now, after the city has fallen in 586 B.C., you might say, why did the city fall? Because of all of the immorality that Jeremiah mentions in the first 28 chapters. Go back, I, I would encourage you this next week, go back and read the first 28 chapters of the book of Jeremiah and just look at the sins that Jeremiah lists. They have violated the covenant time after time after time, God says in through Jeremiah, should I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? After listing their immorality, their injustice, their lack of mercy, the perversion of their priests, the wickedness of their kings, their national rebellion and idolatry, and all of that which Jeremiah likens to spiritual adultery. And he says, you have violated the terms of my covenant. You have broken it down. You have ignored me. You've chased after broken cisterns. You've worshipped other gods. You've offered your children up in the fire, things I never commanded you to do. You've listened to false prophets. You say, peace and peace, when God has told them time after time, if they will not repent, he will bring destruction. And they ignored all of that. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked people with foreheads of iron that did not receive or listen to a word that God said to them. Not one. And God continually says, should I not avenge myself on such a nation? These are my people, and they don't worship me. And all of their sin is just piled up to the heavens. God describes it that way. Without number, without limit, these people were, were idol worshipers and covenant breakers. Babylonians came in and destroyed that. They invaded the land and destroyed the nation of Israel. Took away all of their best men, their brightest men, their best looking men. 
took them all captive to the land of Babylon, and left everything in Judah in ruins. So in 586 B.C., here's the question that is on every Jew's mind. Does the sin of the nation of Israel mean that God has cast off His people? With all of our iniquity, with all of our sin, with all of our idolatry, we have violated the terms of the covenant. For hundreds of years they had done that. Violated the terms of the covenant. Will God cast us off? Because to Abraham, God promised a land and a blessing and that the people would be a blessing to the nations. And the, the nation of Israel wasn't that in 586. In fact, I, Jeremiah describes the nation of Israel as a hissing and a reproach among the nations. Everybody looked at the Israelites and shook their head. You're just a shell of your former self, all your former glory that you enjoyed under David. And now all they had was vassal kings who ruled according to the dictates of the Babylonian Empire. They had nothing. They were anything but a blessing to the world. Anything but that. And so now the question on every Jew's mind is, does this mean we're cast off? God not only promised that to Abraham, that we would be his people and that, and that he would be our God and that he would give us this land and that we would dwell in this land and be a blessing to the nations and that there would be a seed that God would give to, to the Abraham through us that would end up blessing the rest of the nations. But God also made certain promises to David to take of David's line and sit somebody on David's throne and let him rule forever and ever so that in, in fulfillment to the covenant to Abraham and the covenant to David, Israel would end up blessing the nations through that Messiah, that one who would come to fulfill both of those covenants. And yet if you, if you stood in the ruins of the city of Jerusalem and looked around, you would see the king's palace laid waste, all of the rocks on the ground, absolutely destroyed. You couldn't point to anybody and say, there's the descendant of David, there's the king. There was no such thing. There was no king in Jerusalem. All of them had been taken away and killed by Nebuchadnezzar. So the kingdom was in ruins. There was no king. There was no throne. And now they don't even have the land. And they're ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. Is God going to fulfill His promise to Abraham? And is God going to fulfill His promise to David? Or, because we have violated the terms of the Mosaic Covenant... Will God cast us off as His people? That, that is the million-dollar question. And every Jew would be asking for an answer to that question. Well, God answers that question through Jeremiah. And it is in the context of that answer that the promise of the new covenant is given. So, let's pick it up in verse 30. Sorry, chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And I've never done this before, but I need to do this because I'm going to be reading a lot this morning, so I know. <laughs> I'm reading a lot. It's not funny. <laughs> Chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, I want you to notice how God promises that the land would be destroyed. Now, when I look at you and look over top like this, unless I have to talk for a long time, then I'll take my glasses off and do this to point at you and then put them back on. I promised myself I would never do that. Chapter 30, verse 1, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land which I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Is God going to fulfill His promise to Abraham? That they would... Okay. Whether God would fulfill His promise to Abraham and give them the land? What does verse 3 say? I'll restore them, and they will possess it. That's the answer to this question. Has God cast off His people because of their disobedience? The answer is no. 
Is God going to fulfill His promise to Abraham even in spite of their disobedience? And the answer is yes. Because He promises in verse 3, I will restore their fortunes. Verse 4. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see, if a male can give birth, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. That is, they would be delivered from the land of Babylon. Verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Hold on a second. David has been dead for 500 years. How would they come back into the land and serve David their king? If you stood in the center of Jerusalem, you would see no royal palace. You would see no throne of David. You would see no king and no kingdom. There was no monarchy. It was over. It was done. How would they come back into the land and possess the land and serve David their king? You understand the reference to David. It's not literal David. Looking forward to somebody. Who was it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. God promises they will come back into the land. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And they will serve David their king. That's the Davidic covenant. Has God cast off his people? Does he abrogate or tossed away the promises of the old covenant under Abraham, or the promises to the covenant to Abraham and the promises to David? Not at all. God will restore their fortunes. He will bring them back to the land. They will possess it. And they will serve David their king. That is the promise to fulfill all the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant and all of the conditions of the Davidic covenant in spite of the sin of the nation of Israel. Look down to verse 18 of chapter 30. Verse 18. Read together through verse 24. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruin and the palace will stand on its rightful place. From them will proceed thanksgiving in the voice of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them, and they will not be diminished. I also will honor them, and they shall will not be insignificant. Their children also will be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all their oppressors. Their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I want you to notice that promise. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Notice that he does not say, you were my people, and I was your God. What does he say? In the future, you will be my people, and I will be your God. That's significant. We'll talk about why next week, but I just want you to notice that promise, and I want you to notice as we read how often that promise is reiterated. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Verse 23, Behold, the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest, It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and until He has accomplished the intent of His heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. And then in chapter 31, beginning of verse 1, you see how there is a promise here again to restore their fortunes and to rebuild the city. Verse Chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to its rest, 
The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will rejoice or will enjoy them. For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness, Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with labor, and she who is with labor with child together. A great company. They will return here. With weeping, they will come, and by supplication, I will lead them. I will make them walk by the streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, if you're a Jew who just watched the destruction of your nation, these are comforting words, and I hope you're catching that. God's promise, I'll bring you back, I'll gather you back from the north country, the east, the south, the west, whatever. I'll bring you all back, I'll bring you into this land. You'll plant, we'll rebuild the cities, I'll restore your prosperity, I will bless you again, you will possess the land, you will serve my King David. These are all promises given to the Israelites, to the Jews. Now I want you to look down in verse 23 of chapter 30. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, sorry, we're in chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, a holy hill. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks, for I will satisfy, for I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. I want to explain it just for briefly for a moment. There was a proverb in Jeremiah's day that the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What happens when you eat something sour? You know what happens to your teeth? You kind of... Mm. Makes your teeth kind of set on edge. Well, there was a proverb going around that, hey, we're suffering this destruction, but it was our fathers who sinned. For 500 years, they've been sinning and racking up guilt, and now we have to suffer the consequences of it, and they're all dead in the grave, and they don't have to deal with that. And so the fathers ate the sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. They did the sinning, and we're suffering the punishment for it. And the Lord says there's coming a day when that judgment will not be like that. It will not be that the father sinned and the children had to suffer the punishment for it. There's coming a day, says the Lord, when judgment for sin will be swift and severe and it will be meted out to every individual who sins in that way. And so you'll no longer say the father sinned and it's all their sin and now we're suffering for it. They won't say that. Why? Because in that day, in the day that he's about to describe here, the judgment upon people for their sin will be swift and immediate and severe. And it will be just. So, verse 31. This is the passage quoted by the author of Hebrews. Verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. 
declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So what is the answer for their violation of the old covenant? You did not keep the covenant that I made with the house of Israel and I brought them up of the land of Egypt. What is God's answer to their violation of that covenant? Is it to cast them off? Is it to make them no longer His people? Is God's answer to all of their sin and rebellion to simply say, well, look, you know, all of those promises that I was going to give to you, no longer to you. All those promises I've stored up, I'm going to pour those out on a different people. Gentiles or some other nation or the church. That's not God's answer. God's answer is to make with them a new covenant. And through the new covenant, God will end up fulfilling all of the terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. So the promise to possess the land and the promise of a king who would rule in their nation, those promises would be fulfilled. Not because they were able to fulfill the terms of the old covenant. They weren't. They sinned and they violated the terms of the old covenant. But those promises would be fulfilled. God would fulfill them because He would make with them a new covenant. And thus, you notice the the promise there, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, this is future tense for the nation of Israel, making them as a nation His people and Him being their God. So, what is the answer to the question? Does Israel's sin and their disobedience nullify the promises of God? Will He cast them off because of their disobedience? Their sin was insurmountable. It was it was horrific, and it was not just... We need to understand the Babylonian captivity did not happen because the Jews missed a couple of Sabbaths. That's not why it happened. It's not like they, they missed a couple of Sabbaths and they said, Oh, God, I'm just going to bring the Babylonians in. They're going to destroy you and, and wipe you out. That's not why they were punished. By the way, you know why the Babylonian captivity was 70 years? Jeremiah reveals the reason of that. Because every seventh year, the Israelites were not supposed to plant their land. They were to leave it fallow and to not plant anything and not harvest anything. They were to live off of the produce of the previous six years. Every seventh year, the land was to enjoy a rest. So later on in the book of Jeremiah, God says the captivity in Babylon will last 70 years because I'm going to give to my land all of its Sabbaths right in a row, 70 of them. That means they had been violating the terms of the covenant for how long? If every seven years they were supposed to give up one year, how many of those seven-year periods of time have to elapse before you get to 70? 70. What's 70 times 7? No, 70... What? Hold on. (laughs) How long had that been going on, that violation of the covenant? (laughs) A long time. We're talking centuries of them ignoring the commands of God. Centuries of them violating the terms of the covenant. Wasn't that they missed a Sabbath? Forgot to offer a sacrifice? Misscheduled the Passover? Wasn't anything like that. Generation after generation after generation was the most wicked, immoral, and unimaginable idolatry. It is beyond what I can even describe to you. And you read the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you've got to wonder, why didn't God destroy that nation, every last one of them, wipe them out? Why is there a single Jew left alive today when they have disgraced him that badly? You know the answer? Because God promised to Abraham He would give them the land. He promised to David He would give them a king. He promised to Jeremiah He'd give him a new covenant through which He would fulfill both of those old covenants. The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. In spite of all of the disobedience of the nation of Israel, God has not cast off His people. Nor has He taken all of the promises to them and poured them out on us. We get certain blessings from the new covenant. 
But God is not in the business of taking those promises that He made to them and now fulfilling them spiritually in some sense. Will God cast off His people? Actually, the answer to that question is in verse 35 of chapter 31. Look at it. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord and from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, the measuring line will go out farther straight ahead of the hill of Gareb and then it will return to Goa and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and of all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forevermore. Basically, the Lord is saying all the boundaries of the nation of the, of the city of Jerusalem, all of those boundaries have been expanded and this, they will possess that and I will rebuild that. And he specifically gives some of the details of that rebuilding and that blessing. Does the Lord cast off his people? Well, if it's possible to measure the heavens and plumb the earth's depths. Yeah. If you can, if you can stop the sun from shining and giving light and day and stop the moon and the stars from shining and being light by night, then yeah, the Lord will cast off his people. See, these promises are given to national Israel. You know why Israel does not cease to be a nation even to this day? You know why there are no more Edomites and Amalekites and Horites and Jebusites, but we have Israelites? You know why that is? It's because of what he says in verses 35 and 36. If you can, if you can change that order, then Israel stops being a nation before me forever. These promises, the promises of the new covenant, are given to national Israel. That's what Jeremiah would have understood. That's what every Jew in Jeremiah's day would have understood. And that is what we should understand as well. These promises are given to national Israel. And just in case, just in case you doubt whether God was serious about this or not, or whether Jeremiah got it right or not, after chapter 32, which details Jeremiah's time in prison, look at verse 30. Sorry, look at chapter 33. I promised you all the way through chapter 33, and here I'm going to deliver it. It's a little behind schedule, but we're going to deliver it. Chapter 33, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time, while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword while they're coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of the men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath. And I have hidden my face from the city because of all their wickedness. Yes, sin was real. Yes, God judged it. Verse 6, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. I will be to, uh, it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do to them. For they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. That's the blessing to the nations part, verse 9. Thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place, of which you say it's a waste without man and without beast, that is, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate and without man and without inhabitant and without beast, there will be heard again, verse 11, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. 
and of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there will again be in this place, which is waste without man or beast, and in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Hold on a second. A righteous branch of David will swing forth? Swing forth. You realize it's not David. What is it? It's the descendant of David. That's, isn't that what he said a couple chapters ago? Do you know that, did you notice that before the giving of the new covenant, God promised two things? I'll fulfill the terms of the Abrahamic covenant and I will fulfill the terms of the Davidic covenant just as I promised to your forefathers. You will get the land and you will serve David your king. Then the new covenant right in between there. And then what has he said now after the new covenant? I'm going to forgive you the land again. I will rebuild the cities. I will restore your fortunes. And I will cause a, a, a spring from the root and the offspring of Jesse, of David, to spring forth. And he will do what? He will rule. Now, if you looked, if you looked at the kingdom of David in this, in this period of time, what you would have seen was like a tree stump. It's dead. There's nothing there. But God promised that one would come from the line of David who would be a king. And so what does verse 15 of chapter 33 say? In those days and at that time, I'll cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually." The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the seashore cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. What has God promised to do? Establish the Davidic kingdom, which was then in ruins, and establish a king from that kingdom who will rule and execute justice on the earth. Before the giving of the new covenant and after the giving of the new covenant, God promised I will fulfill the terms of the Abrahamic covenant and I will fulfill the terms of the Davidic covenant. Because my covenant with night and sky, my, my covenant with day and night cannot be broken. So my covenant with David cannot be broken. God would establish one to sit on David's throne and to rule forever to establish justice and righteousness, not from a spiritual throne in the heavens, but the promise to Jeremiah was on the earth. That's the promise. Has God cast off His people because of their sin? No. Oh no, He's just getting started. The best is yet to come. If your theology of the new covenant does not have room for the fulfillment of all of these promises reiterated throughout the Old Testament right in the context of the New Covenant. Promises to national Israel for a land, for a city in Jerusalem, 
for a descendant of, J- of David to rule and to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever to fulfill the terms of this new covenant. If your theology of the new covenant does not have room for all of these promises to national Israel, your theology of the new covenant is wrong. You have missed the point. God has not cast off His people. He's not taken all these promises and spiritualized them in some sense so that they can be fulfilled in the church. God will fulfill all of these promises. How would the Jews have understood the new covenant? They would have said, we've failed. We've sinned mightily. And we've lost everything as a result of it. But God has promised that He will restore all of that because He's making a new covenant which we'll be able to keep. So we'll get the land and we'll get a king and we'll get a kingdom. Everything will be rebuilt and we will be His people and He will be our God. Those are the promises. If you have, a, if you have an idea of the covenant or theology of the covenant that doesn't have room for that, your theology of the covenant is wrong. We'll come back to that next week. I want you to focus now for just a moment on the, on the promises of forgiveness in the new covenant. Look at verse 34 of chapter 31. This really is the aspect of the new covenant that we enjoy today. Verse 34 of chapter 31. Oh, no, I got that wrong. Hold on. Oh, yeah, no. Sorry, verse 33. Beginning of verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now obviously we're not sitting under a messianic kingdom. We don't have a king ruling over us. The branch that comes from David's line is not executing justice and righteousness in the earth. Those things have not been fulfilled. What has been fulfilled is this part. We have become his people and he has become our God. And by that and because of that, in the words of verse 34, he has forgiven our iniquity and our sins. He will remember no more. That is the promise of spiritual forgiveness in the new covenant. Israel would have understood their violation of the old covenant. Everything the law said not to do, they did. Everything the law demanded of them, they failed to keep all of it. And like them, we found ourselves in a similar way before we came to Christ, before God made Himself known to us and opened our eyes and our hearts. We had violated the law of God. We were liars and thieves and blasphemers and fornicators and adulterers and God-haters. We violated all the terms of that old covenant. Everything the law said thou shalt not do, we had done. Everything the law demands of us, we did not do. And Jesus did not come to mediate the old covenant. He came to fulfill the terms of the old covenant on our behalf, to obey it fully, so that we could have His righteousness and He would take away our sin. He came to initiate the new covenant by His blood. And as we celebrate communion, that's what we are acknowledging. We're not pretending that right now all the terms of the new covenant have been fulfilled. We're recognizing that we have been grafted into the new covenant. We enjoy this blessing of forgiveness as an aspect of the new covenant that has been initiated by the blood of Christ. But we, like national Israel, must look forward to a day when all of the terms of this covenant will be fulfilled for us and in us. We are His people, and He is our God. And all of that because of what Christ has done in His death on the cross, to forgive us and to give us His righteousness. All the righteous demands of the law are met in Jesus Christ, so that if I am in Him, in God's eyes, all the righteous demands of the law are met on my behalf, because Christ met them. And then He died on a cross to pay the price for sin and for sinners. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.